Philemon. One time I was teaching a class and uh, I was making a mention about, making a reference, I mentioned Philemon. The book of the Bible, Philemon, and someone in the class said, <laughs> Man, you're so, you're so silly, you're so funny. He thought I was pulling his leg because, you know, you know how people make up books of the Bible just to mess with you, like second hesitations and stuff like that. Please open to the book of Hezekiah or whatever. And this guy thought I was yanking his chain. I said, no, brother, there is a book. Really, there really is a book called Philemon. Demonstrating his biblical literacy by not even knowing that such a book even exists. But, I mean, it is a very, very short book. One of the first things people think is, how do I say Philemon? And my answer is, I don't know, but I just say Philemon, because that's what I heard a lot of people say before me. So let's pass it on. Actually, I've heard people, I've heard a few people say, I've actually heard two, more than, I've heard it all really. British guys will say it a little different sometimes, but that's because British guys say everything different. They say, open up to two Corinthians, if you would, two Corinthians, the old English preachers. But I think I've heard like Philemon and, uh, or if you're Jamaican, Philemon. Please open your Bible to Philemon, don't you know? What's that? Page 1271. Page 1271 in the, I assume you mean in the uh, in the Pew Bibles? Okay. In your Bible? Well, that doesn't mean it's 1271 in every Bible, does it? <laughs> trying to help them cheat, but it may not work. They're going to wind up in 2 Peter somewhere. We'll go, with, we'll go with Philemon or Philemon. And I'm going to spend a couple of weeks on it. Now, I'm going to do something here that I don't think I've ever done from up here. And that is, I'm going to read an entire book of the Bible. We're going to read an entire book of the Bible. So, starting with Isaiah chapter 1. I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's, it's Philemon. So, here it is. This is a letter. Now, you know, we call, we call these books letters. And a lot of times, we still don't see them as letters. We still see them as books. Because, you know, I mean, Romans doesn't seem that much like a letter. But when you get to Philemon, it really does sound like a letter. Partly because of its brevity. So here it is. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your faith and love toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. He's still talking to Philemon. That's who he's written it to. Now that's all introductory. Now let's get to the meat of this thing. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I fathered him while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, and now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you as part of myself. 
I wanted to keep him with me, so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but out of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ since I am confident of your obedience I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. So do Mark, Herstarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So concludes the letter known as Philemon. Well... How about it? Here we have a few interesting people. We have a few have a few names like Philemon, like Aphia and Archippus and Onesimus. And names, I mean, let, let's just be honest, as biblical names go, uh, you know, these haven't caught on. Haven't really caught on. This is addressed to the man, Philemon. But much of it centers on this other guy, Onesimus. Now, who were they? What is the context? When you read these letters, you ought to ask those questions. And then, having asked the questions, you ought to do what you can to try to get them answered and find out what are some backgrounds of this. Biblical backgrounds. This is something that every Christian can do. There are ways to get some background. It helps you understand it better to get the background on it. To understand who these people were, we have to venture into their time and into their society and to understand what's sort of at play here, these class differences between these people in the Roman world and most specifically between citizen and slave in Rome. Citizen and slave. And honestly, if we wanted to understand that, that might even help us to get a bigger picture Matter of fact, I'd like to do a little bit of a perspective, a little foray into the general topic of slavery anyway, so that we have perspective. And this is partly important because of the fact that in our day and time, this has become a topic of people's focus and energy. You know, we in our society don't, let's just be honest, we don't know much. (laughs) We just don't know much. Uh, the the depth and the breadth of our knowledge is, you know, not that impressive anymore. I, maybe the breadth more so, because we do have easy, quick, handy access to just about all the knowledge on the globe. All you have to do is typeity type type, clickety click click, and you can just about 
go to any kind of subject or subfield of knowledge anywhere and find something that somebody wrote and posted. I mean, it's like it's like the entire world is 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 an enormous library now, which a lot of us are old enough to remember when if you wanted information, you had to physically go someplace to locate it. Geographically, you had to go to a different space location. And you may not even have it anywhere near you. And there were times when people would drive across many state lines to go to a place to learn something they wanted to know because they there were no books on it where they lived. That's all changed now. So we might say that our breadth of knowledge is great, or at least our access to knowledge. But perspective is sorely lacking. We sort of have a little bite-sized impressions of knowledge. And so even on a topic where our society really still has a lot of focus and talks a lot about it, about our history. We don't know our history very well, but we just know that there are some things in it. And one of the things in it is slavery, and people talk a lot about that, though there is much they don't know about it. And there is a lot they've sort of confused about regarding it, and particularly in the, in the big picture. So it sort of helps us. Uh, it sort of helps us to get a broader understanding of what this means since we encounter it all the way across time. When we come to the Bible, we see it as a reality because it's a reality everywhere. Slavery is universal. It's just part of the experience of mankind. People are in hierarchical arrangements. You know, it's just the way it's always been. And the bottom rung of the hierarchy of arrangements. The bottom rung has always been a, some kind of servitude, some form of servitude. There are some distinctions that can be made about this. I mean, not every kind of slavery is exactly the same. For example, one kind could be for life, your whole life. But one kind could be for a term of service, and then you, you can get freedom at that point. Or you could be manumented, the way they would say it. Some, in some, some systems, you can buy your way out or be redeemed from it. Or you could perform some kind of task that would get you free from it. The, the basic understanding of what a slave is, is it's involuntary. It's the key thing about it. Involuntary servants are slaves because they didn't ask for it. They didn't agree. They're in servitude, but they didn't say, uh, they didn't apply for the position, you know, they didn't sign any contracts themselves. It happens for all kinds of reasons uh, around the world and through all of history, often because of the conquests of peoples. We read this in the Bible, don't we? One nation conquers another nation. And what happens? We have great prophets, writers in our Bible, who essentially live most of their lives in this condition. Daniel, the great prophet Daniel, spent most of his life away from Israel. He spent most of his life in a foreign place as a servant. And he had no rights there. He, didn't, he couldn't choose to leave when he wanted. He was carried off. Now, we get this, um, we get other reasons besides conquest. There has been what's called debt slavery. Poverty could plunge someone into this condition where you, you had nothing. And your only way to live was to basically become something like the property of someone else, you know, and and so when we get to Roman times and the Roman world, where Philemon lives, let me give you a little background on that. The uh, 
Bible scholar Everett Ferguson says, Slavery was a basic element in this ancient society. It was extensive in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, and a large number of prisoners of war made slaves cheap in the Hellenistic Greek world and then in Republican Rome. Uh, But the stable conditions of the early empire, the Roman Empire, this is New Testament stuff, made home-bred slaves the main source. It is estimated that one out of every five residents in Rome was a slave. There was a proposal in the Roman Senate uh, to require slaves to wear distinctive dress. And that proposal was defeated, we are told, by Seneca, the ancient Roman. You know why they defeated it? They defeated the proposal the senators did in Rome, lest the slaves learn how numerous they were. Because Rome dealt from time to time with slave uprisings. Anybody ever see Spartacus? I am Spartacus! I am Spartacus! I am Spartacus! Right? The old, uh, yeah, of course we know it. We know the real Spartacus was Kirk Douglas. Um, The condition of slavery, this writer uh, Ferguson says, might result from war, piracy, the exposure of a child. That means people abandon their kids. Uh, they didn't want him. It was, it was like abortion for the ancient world. I don't want this baby. They just leave it somewhere. Maybe someone takes it. Maybe not. Out of sight, out of mind. Christians often took those kids and raised them, but sometimes they were taken by people who would make them into slaves. Like you know, like find, honestly, like finding a thing people left and and selling that thing. That's how they saw it. There was a sale of a child from time to time to pay debts. If you can imagine that. There was those who were condemned in courts of law. Criminals could become be sentenced to slavery. You could be born to a slave mother, and then you would be. This is all in the Roman world. You could be an individual that was acquired uh, by purchase from slave dealers, or by inheritance, or by home breeding. That's when someone who owns slave slaves would try to get their slaves to have kids, so that they could. They thought there was a market for it. All this happened in the Roman world. The legal status of a slave in the Roman world was that of a thing. Not every time, but very often. In fact, the Greeks had said this. Aristotle defined a slave as, quote, living property. Here's a quote from Aristotle. The slave is a living tool, and a tool is a lifeless slave. So there were no legal rights for these people. And they were subject to the absolute power of the master that they served. Well, that's in the Roman world. I'll give you a few few little interesting things. There are a lot of things people don't know about the history of the idea of slavery in the world. It goes through different phases. In the Middle Ages, there was a system where people would be called serfs. You ever hear that? A serf. No, I don't mean like... I don't mean like surfing USA. S-E-R-F. Sort of part of a part of a system in which the poorest people, to live, to be protected, they work the land. The landowner was the lord of that territory. He owned that land. And they worked for him. And he offered protection for them. The difference with a serf was the serf couldn't be sold individually like property, but was attached to the land. 
So if the one guy sold his land to another guy, guess what came with it? All the serfs on that land were tied to that land. They came with it. Just like the trees come with it, you know. There were there were there were in some times in history what they called indentured servants. You know, when we read in the Bible sometimes words like a bond servant or a bond slave, and and there, the Old Testament has rules about redeeming, about periods of service and you're free, and redemption, and someone could choose to stay with someone, you know, and they and they get the ear pierced, you know, the whole thing, because they want to stay with that person. But indentured servitude came along, and in fact, did you know? That here on, in the, on this continent, long before the importation of people to be slaves, when, they, when the colonists were here and they realized that to really grow their products, like tobacco and stuff, to really make a, a, to really make a profit at all, they needed a lot more workers. Their first and primary way to do it was indentured servants from Europe. And they brought them in. And they would contract to work for a period of time. Now, some of those, some were voluntary because they just had nowhere else to go. And this was a way to go somewhere else and start new. Some were involuntary. They were always poor. There were convicts that were sent as indentured service to the New World. There were religious separatists and political prisoners that were sent. And some even kidnapped Europeans, a lot of Irish, you know, and sent over here to work in the New World. They were indentured servants. While they were serving in that way, they were somewhat like property during that period of time. They had a few basic rights. And upon completion, five, seven years, whatever, they would be rewarded sometimes with a piece of land and a few basic things. Of course, we learn from history that it wasn't all as rosy um, as it seemed because they say that, um, they say that around 60% of the indentured servants from Europe who came to do this Never didn't didn't survive long enough to get to get their term completed and to get their reward for it. It's a rough life. Well, at some point, many of them started to revolt in uh, the conditions, and they created an angry class of European servants. And at that point, something new appeared, which was ships arriving with people, ships full of human beings, and people. And guys willing to sell them. And so they said, well, nuts to this. We'll use these guys instead. This is how this is how Africans began flooding into this market. And that's where that started. Did you know that many more Africans were enslaved in Islamic countries than in European countries? Here's the stuff that sort of flies under the radar. But it's, it's interesting to know. Um, and by the way, large numbers of Europeans were also enslaved in the Islamic world. One historian named Davis, Robert Davis, um, wrote a book called Christian Slaves and Muslim Masters, White Slavery in the Mediterranean and the Barbary. He said from 1500 to 1650, more white Christian slaves were probably taken to Barbary than African slaves to the Americas. There were European slaves still being sold at auctions in Egypt after the emancipation of the American slaves. In fact, there was an Anglo-Egyptian treaty in 1877 that prohibited the import-export of slaves from the Sudan on one side to Europe and from Europe on the other side by the Arabs. They mutually agreed to stop sending people. The Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Muslim Empire, had a large population of mostly male slaves. They took a lot of these from the Balkans. 
You know where the Balkans are, Eastern Europe? In fact, a lot of people went to the Balkans. The Balkans were poor. And as a matter of fact, the very word slave comes from this because it was Slavic people. Large numbers of Slavic people enslaved. And this is where the English word, and incidentally, the, an Arabic word, and a few other languages came up with this word for a slave named after Slavic people. And, of course, all this centuries before the first African was ever taken to the New World. In the East, China was prolific in the trading of slaves. Historian Martin Klein said that China was once one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. He estimated that India once had more slaves, um, or, or through over a period of a few centuries, the total number of slaves in India outnumbered the entire Western Hemisphere. In Africa, Arabs were taking slaves back to the Islamic empires for centuries before Europeans came. And of course, it was a long land route. There's a, there's, as bad as the dreaded Middle Passage was on the ships, they say that even worse was the passage through the Sahara because the Arabs came and got slaves and took them by land, took them by land back into Islamic empires, into all those places. And Americans should remember that even though we, when we think of slave, we read the Bible, we think, what? Slave? Oh my gosh, because we only have one concept. We only have one image in our mind of what that looks like because we're sort of limited to our own history and we don't perceive the greater history of the world. And so we, we don't often, we can't often understand the difference. In fact, there was a billboard, there was a billboard um, that an atheist group put up uh, I saw this a couple of years ago, uh, in, an, in an attempt to, to really make the Bible look retrograde and terrible. And it said, um, it quoted Paul saying, to, you know, slaves obey your masters, right? Because it's, it's a long string of Paul saying, talking about different hierarchies and, you know, husband love your wife and all the different things. One of them is slaves obey your masters. And put that on there, on the billboard. To say, yeah, see? Because, because most Americans who see that billboard, they're going to think that the Bible says that the kind of slavery they think of, which is old antebellum southern slavery, why the Bible is, likes that and, wants, and, and would have told those people to just shut up and take it and there's nothing wrong with it. That's the impression. Of course, that's, you know, that's a complete abuse. That, that betrays... And, and you know a, a kind of misunderstanding that's hard to even you know take like three hours to to sort of sort out how many misunderstandings are involved because because we're just using one word. But as I'm saying, you know through most of history, race played little part in slavery at all. Most people throughout history were enslaved by people who looked just like them. It was vulnerability that made you a slave. It was life circumstances that made you a slave. On every continent, slaves existed. Tribal warfare, class system, economic conditions, debt, criminal justice, slavery was a penalty sometimes, all these things. And by the way, when Africa became a major source of slave traders, it wasn't they weren't targeted for racial reasons. It was supply and demand. Because the tribes there offered a lot of human capital for a low price. And other places were starting to make it harder. There were starting to be laws passed. Nations built where it said, you can't come here and take our people. 
They just it was just an easy an easy target with an easy market. Other sources dried up. You know, the first man from Africa, from African origin, to set foot in the New World was actually a free man from Spain who came with Columbus in 1492. Two more came in Columbus' second voyage. And it's fascinating when you when you just consider, you know, it's a dilemma all the way through through our history and Christians, Christians dealing with it all throughout. We've talked about this before because we have Freedom Sundays, right? And and we, of course, revert back to this. We think again about what's happening now. All those people right now who are bought and sold right now as property and abused in the worst possible ways. And we just don't understand just, you know, in some ways when we, when we, when we do the real history of slavery, it is not in order to say to protesters today and people who talk about it today, not to say to them, oh, it's not as bad as you think. In another way, it's to say, it's far worse. You have no idea the extent of this. You have no idea just how widespread that it actually was. You haven't even considered it and how, how little people regarded it as a problem in some ways. Do you know that in the antebellum South, freed blacks became commercial slave owners themselves? There was a book by a guy named Larry Coger called Black Slave Owners. Um, and another guy wrote a historian wrote a book called Aristocrats of Color, the Black Elite. They estimate that one-third of free blacks in New Orleans, for example, owned slaves. There were a few thousand of those in New Orleans who volunteered to fight for the Confederacy, believe it or not, uh, because it was there because they felt that their livelihoods uh, were threatened as well. The Harvard historian Henry Louis Gates estimates that in the mid-19th century, some 3,776 freed American blacks owned some 12,900 slaves. He says at the time of the Civil War, Native American tribes owned about 8,000 slaves. The Cherokee alone had about 4,600. You never see this depicted, but on the Trail of Tears, you know who was among those caravans of people on that terrible journey? Slaves. Um, one historian, Jerome Handler, says that in the Caribbean, black slaveholding was even more common. Um, you might be surprised at the breakdown, speaking of the Caribbean, of where those who were those who were traded. Remember, remember John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, was once in the business of doing this. It was a lucrative business. But do you know where? Have you ever seen the breakdown of all of those who were taken? from Africa and, and, and sent across the Atlantic, 41% of them all, 41% went to Caribbean islands owned by the Dutch, by the French, by the Danish. 37% of them went to Brazil, which was Portuguese territory. 15% of them went to Spanish territories in the Caribbean and the South American coastal areas. And 4.5% of them went to British North America. 4.5. And then 2.5% of them were taken to parts of Europe and Asia. They say that in the West Indies, slaves may have comprised as much as 90% of the population. Um, Africans were being shipped and sold in the Caribbean and South American lands in the 1500s. Long before, this was when there was no slavery in North America at all. Right until the late 17th century. 
Well, why all of this perspective? When we come to this, when we come to Philemon, we're just, we're, and we say, wow, what? We have a man who, we got this guy Onesimus and he's a slave? How does, what's going on? We've got to get the bigger picture of If you had asked Onesimus, is it weird that you're a slave? Is that bizarre? Can you believe? He wouldn't have thought it that strange. Because he would have looked around the world and said, there's more of us than free people. <laughs> At least in the Roman world, in many cases, many places anyway. And it's perfectly natural. There are all kinds of people like me, servants in different ways, involuntary, looking to try to get our, get our freedom one way or another, somehow. And so, as we in the next week or two, depending, sort of get more into, what does this mean? What is, what is Paul saying to this man? What, is, what are the implications of it? We're going to see that there's some really something pretty revolutionary here. By the way, we who read our Bibles, we know that there, there is a more spiritual um, understanding of slavery and freedom, isn't there? Because we're told that nobody is truly free in this world. Everybody is serving somebody. And here, I don't know if you've noticed, but here in the freest of all countries, I look around and I see a lot of people in bondage. We are we're supposed to be a free people, but we, I mean... So many people in our society are dragging chains. They're enslaved to all kinds of things. They don't look like free people. They don't seem like free people to me. We sing about it. We talk about it. How, what do we mean when we say when we when we sing we are free, free, forever, we're free. We don't mean God bless America. We live in a free country. I mean, yeah, we appreciate that. We're, we're we don't take that for granted. But that's not what that song means. You could be politically free, and you could and you could just be wearing the chain your whole life. The enemy has enslaved people. You are a slave to sin if you haven't been freed by Christ. And when you are freed by Christ, you then serve Him. You you become the indebted, lifelong, permanent servant of His. I am a slave to Christ. Incidentally, even the word we translate slave is tricky. Because the New Testament, you know, the Greek word doulos, you get it as servant, you get it as slave, you get it as bond servant sometimes, depending on context. We serve willingly, voluntarily. Martin Luther said, the Christian is the freest Lord of all and subject to none, thanks to Christ. But the Christian is also the most dutiful servant of all in obedience to Christ. We're both. The people around us, um, they, they think they're really enjoying their freedom as they are abusing the political freedoms they have. They're not realizing that, that they're not free at all. I mean, freedom has its limits always anyway, just logically speaking. There, you know how many things you are not free to do and to be? Some people today have such a such a deluded notion of their own individual autonomy and freedom that they think that they can achieve kinds of freedom that scientifically are not even possible. Just for for example, I, I am not free. Uh, I'm not free to be 
Korean. But there was a gentleman in London that I read about last week who said that he was Korean. He's British, but he said that he identifies as Korean and he went and got plastic surgery to make his eyes look more like he's Korean and claims that he's Korean. Now, does that sound like someone who's living the free life to you? Does that sound like a free man to you? That sounds like somebody who is sadly and very unfortunately in a bizarre kind of bondage. And so are so many around us. And, and by contrast, there are many people who don't have the political freedom you have, who are much freer in their soul, whose spirits have been freed. There are Christians in jails right now who, like Paul, in chains, even as he writes these letters, free. You know that slaves wrote a lot of hymns. Slaves wrote a lot of hymns. There were a lot of people in terrible, terrible kind of bondage who, thanks to the gospel, and because they had a hope after this life, they were free in here. They were free. Christ had freed them from sin and death and hopelessness and despair, even while they were subject to the cruelty of sinful people in this world. So we can learn then even from the simple realities of the, of the Bible times. We're not different, really that different from them. We are supposed to not abuse our freedom in Christ, but demonstrate it, use it, live it out, and go about the business of setting other people free.